The following audio is for Emmanuel Baptist Church. More information about Emmanuel is available at our website, www.myemmanuel.net. Well, we're going to continue our study on God's kingdom. Uh, going to move away from 1 Thessalonians. I'm going to be in the Old Testament in Genesis, Genesis chapter 13 in a few minutes. And uh, we're going to look at uh, kingdom character. And the question is, how do we live with kingdom character in a foreign land, in a foreign world? Uh, if we look around at our world, it's easy to tell that we're not in the kingdom, right? Uh, this is not God's kingdom. Uh, can turn on the news. We can see all kinds of tragedies going on. We can see uh, volcanoes, tornadoes. We can see crime, sex trafficking, drugs. We can see children being neglected and abused, um, war, terrorism, uh, school shootings. All of these things are just a reminder to us that we're not in the kingdom right now, are we? We. Uh, we long to be in the kingdom, but we're not in the kingdom. So the question is, how do we as kingdom people live in this imperfect world? How do we behave? How do we react when things don't go our way or conflict enters into our world? How are we to respond to that? And so we're going to look at an Old Testament kingdom person. We're going to look at Abraham uh, in Genesis chapter 13. God hasn't changed his name yet. He's known by Abram. It's later that God would change his name to Abraham. So in this story, he's called Abram. And uh, if you remember, Abram was uh, an idol worshiper. God appeared to him and called him to leave his family, to leave his homeland. And he responded in faith. And he believed God, and he went and God showed him the land of Canaan, and he shows up in the land of Canaan. And uh, what happens? Immediately there's a famine. There's, there's trouble in the promised land where he ends up. And so what does he do? He goes south. He goes down to Egypt to, to get out of the family, famine, and he finds himself, uh, gets himself into a little bit of trouble. He tells a lie, uh, and he tells Pharaoh and the people in Egypt that, oh, this is not my wife, this is my sister, Sarah because he was scared that what they were going to do to him. Uh, and so Pharaoh sees that Sarah's beautiful, tries to take her as his wife. God intervenes and reveals that to Pharaoh. And uh, Pharaoh's upset with Abram. He says, what are you doing to me here? You know. And uh, so Pharaoh gives him a bunch of uh, property, a bunch of wealth, and sends him away and says, get out of here. I don't want anything to do with you. And so that's kind of where we're at. He's coming back from Egypt here. And so I'm going to start reading uh, in Genesis chapter 13, verse 1. He says, So Abram went up from Egypt, he and his wife and all that he had, and Lot with him into the Negev. And so Lot, Lot is his nephew. His younger brother, Haran, has died. And so he's kind of adopted Lot and taken him with him. And so Lot's been following him around, went down to Egypt with him, and now he's coming out of Egypt with him. Uh, verse 2. Now Abram was very rich in livestock, in silver and in gold. And he journeyed on from the, the Negev as far as Bethel to the place where his tent had been at the beginning, between Bethel and Ai, to the place where he had made an altar at first. And there 
Abram called upon the name of the Lord. And so that's our first characteristic that we want to look at as kingdom people. Um, Kingdom people worship the Lord in bad times and in good times, right? And so Abram's having a pretty good time of it right now. We see that he is rich. He's got lots of livestock. He's got lots of goats. He's got lots of sheep. He's got gold. He's got silver. And so he's in the good time. And how does he respond to that? He responds by worship. He calls upon the name of the Lord. And so that phrase, to call upon, really means to depend on, right? And so when we call upon our law enforcement, we are depending on them to keep us safe. We're depending on them to enforce the law. When we go to the doctor, we, we call upon them to diagnose us, to treat us, uh, to treat our illness, to treat us ethically, right? And so to call upon really means to depend on. So he's depending on God, but he's not, it doesn't just say he's depending on God. It says he's calling upon the name of the Lord. And so it's an interesting phrase because in the Old Testament, the name was more than just identifying who. It identified their character. And so really what he's saying here is he's calling upon the character of God. And so Abram, in his good times, doesn't forget that he's dependent on God. And so sometimes we get sidetracked. We get... uh, we, we get caught up in our prosperity, in our, in our wealth, and in the good times that we forget that we're dependent on God. And we forget to worship God. And again, in the Old Testament, when you see those phrases combined, call upon the name of the Lord, it is a, it's a technical term for worship. And it's really saying he worships. And so Abram here, in, in the good days, he's, he's, God's blessed him. He's calling upon, he's worshiping God. He doesn't Uh, He doesn't lose that fact that God, he's dependent on God. And so sometimes in America, I think that's one of our biggest problems is we're so wealthy, we're so prosperous that we forget that we're prosperous because of God's blessing in our lives. And we can't forget that. We can't forget to worship God in the good times. But kingdom people don't only worship God in the good times, they also worship him in the bad times. There's another kingdom saint, uh, Job, who God also blessed. He blessed him with great wealth and a great family. And one day Satan comes before the Lord and God says, hey, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan throws an accusation at Job and says, yeah, but he only worships you. He only fears you. He only calls upon your name. He only depends on you because you've put a hedge of protection around him and you bless him and you've given him all this wealth and he doesn't have any want. You've given it all to him. And God says, okay, challenge accepted. You can take everything that he has. Just don't kill him. And so that's what happens. Satan goes and he destroys. He takes all his livestock. He takes all his wealth. He kills all his children. He eventually will take his health. And how does he respond to that? Uh, Job chapter 1 verses 20 and 21 says, Then Job arose. And this is, this is right after, immediately after learning, he's just lost everything. His kids have died. He's lost his entire wealth. He says, Job arose. He tore his robe. He shaved his head. He fell on the ground. And he worshipped. He worshipped. 
so kingdom people, we worship God regardless of our circumstances, whether they're good or whether they're bad. Sometimes we think worship is only, we only do it when we feel good, when God's answering our prayers, when he's speaking to us and he's, he's given us what we want. Then we worship God. But that's not the case. We worship God regardless of our circumstances, whether he's given or whether he's taken away. And that's what he says in verse 21. He says, and he, he said, that's Job, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I shall return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Do you, do you have that kind of worship? you have that kind of worship when God takes away from you? Or is it only when he gives? And so we have these two extremes in our lives that if, if we get too much, we forget God. If we have too little, we forget God. We won't, don't, don't want anything to do with God. So we've got to avoid those extremes. Or if, if we find ourselves in that extreme, we've got to re- remember God is worthy of our worship. He's worthy to be called upon. He's worthy. Uh, he can be depended on. His character is the same today as it was yesterday. And it will be the same tomorrow. The writer of Proverbs in uh, uh, chapter 30, verses 8 and 9, he, he, he makes this request. He says, Remove far from me falsehood and lying. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with the food that is needful to me, for me, lest I be full and deny you and say, Who is the Lord? Or lest I be poor and steal and profane the name of my God. He's asking, God, don't give me too much, don't give me too little. Because he knows the propensity of himself to forget God, to forget to worship, forget his reliance on God. So we've got to be careful as people, kingdom people living in this world, that we don't neglect worship God because of our circumstances. We don't neglect him when we're prosperous. We don't neglect him when we have little, when we're in conflict, when we're in trouble. So we see that here, that Abram uh, is a kingdom person uh, who worships God. And right now things are great. He's He's got a lot. He's rich in livestock and silver and gold. Uh, we continue to read here, and he journeyed on from. Uh, he's he's come back to the place. He's calling on the name of the Lord. In verse five, it says, "And Lot, who went with Abram, also had flocks and herds and tents, so that the land could not support both of them dwelling together, for their possessions were so great they could not dwell together, and there was strife between the herdsmen of Abram's lot, uh, livestock and the herdsmen of Lot's livestock." That at that time, the Canaanites and the Perizzites were dwelling in the land. And another great lesson for us, I don't really have time to preach it, is the fact that when, when there's limited resources, like there is in this world, there's competition for it. There's competition for resources. And when there's competition for resources, there's going to be conflict. And again, so in this world, there's going to be conflict. And so how, how do we deal with that conflict? Let's continue to read here and see what Abram does. Verse 9 says, Then Abram said to Lot, Let there be no strife between you and me, and between your herdsmen and my herdsmen, for we are kinsmen. In other words, we are brothers. We're family, right? And so we see the next characteristic here. When conflict comes, what does he do? 
He has a desire for peace. He doesn't want there to be conflict. And so what does he do? He, he takes the steps necessary to maintain peace. He doesn't avoid the conflict, right? And so we as kingdom people, we desire peace, and we should maintain, uh, take the steps to maintain peace, to maintain peace, right? And we don't avoid it. We don't run away from it. Um, how many of you are, you know, faster than Usain Bolt running away from conflict when it happens, right? Some, I mean, we, could, we could beat Usain. If we're in conflict, man, I'm not, I don't want anything to do with that, right? And so we run away. And so that's one of our responses. And so that looks like uh, we can ignore it, just say, oh, there's, just ignore it. It'll go away. It'll go away. It'll get better. And by the way, conflict never gets better, does it, when you ignore it? It never goes, it never goes away. And it usually gets worse, right? So he doesn't ignore it. Abram doesn't ignore the conflict. He doesn't deny that there's conflict. He, he doesn't go to a lot and say, oh, there's no conflict, Right? He doesn't run away from it. Um, another way we avoid conflict is to, to literally run away, right? We end the friendship, we quit the job, we leave the church, whatever it is. And so we run, literally run away from conflict. But kingdom people, we as kingdom people, we can't do that. The other thing we can do is we can attack, right? And so when conflict comes, we're going to face it head on, man. We're going to attack it. We're like Floyd Mayweather. You know, we think we're going to win $100 million if we, if we can win, if we can just win. And so we come out swinging and punching. We verbally assault each other. We, we, we physically assault each other. We take each other to court. It doesn't matter as long, it doesn't matter the outcome as long as I win, right? And so that's another way people deal with conflict. And we don't see Abram doing that. He doesn't gather up his forces. He doesn't gather up his men and go and do battle against Lot. What does he do? He addresses it. He goes directly to Lot, right? He doesn't go around gossiping about Lot. He doesn't go to his herd men. He says, oh, Lot, he's terrible, does he? No, he goes directly to the source of the conflict. And he deals with it directly. And so we see that kingdom people, they desire peace, but they don't only desire peace. They take steps to maintain it. And we see that here. He takes the steps to go and maintain the peace because he doesn't want there to be strife between him and his, his nephew. They're brothers. They're, they're, and so that's his nephew. They're, they're relatives. And so... We as kingdom people, especially in the church, who are brothers and sisters in Christ, we're brothers, we're sisters. We should desire peace with one another. And we should take steps to maintain that peace. Well, how does he do that? How does he, what's his plan to maintain the peace? Um, he gives him a choice. In verse 9 he says, Is not the whole land before you? Separate yourself from me. If you take the left hand, I will go to the right. Or if you take the right hand, then I will go to the left. And Lot lifted up his eyes and saw that the Jordan Valley was well watered, where, the, where like the garden of the Lord, like the land of Egypt in the direction of Zor. This was before the Lord destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah. So Lot chose for himself all the Jordan Valley, and Lot journeyed east. Thus they separated from each other. Abram settled in the land of Canaan while Lot settled among the cities of the valley and moved his tent as far as Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. 
what, is, what does he do? He gives, he, he gives Lot first choice. That wasn't, that right, that choice was technically Abram's choice. That was his right. He was the elder. He was the patriarch of the family. Lot was just his nephew. He came along with him. So he didn't have to do that. He could have chose first. He said, I'm going to choose to live here. I'm going to go here to the well-watered place. I'm going to go to the valley that's green and lush and looks like the Garden of Eden. You go somewhere else. But he didn't. He waived his right. And so we as kingdom people exercise our right to waive our rights. We exercise our right to waive our rights. We don't always have to stand on our rights. Right? And the very first point, the fact that he called upon the name of the Lord is the reason that he could waive his rights. Because he wasn't dependent on the land. He wasn't dependent on his rights. He was depending on God. And he knew no matter which direction he went, whether he went to the well-watered valley or he went to the desert, he knew God was the one he depended on. It wasn't the ground. It was God. And so he could waive his rights. And so he waived his rights. That's not the only time that he did that. He would later again waive his rights. When after the story, the rest of the story is Lot, he goes, he lives in Sodom and Gomorrah. There's a war between kings and the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah. They get defeated and Lot gets taken captured. And so Abram's got to go and rescue Lot. And he does. He gathers up his men and he goes and he defeats the kings. And he comes back. And the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah say... Give us the people. You can keep all the stuff. And that would have been his right because he is the victor. To the victors go the spoils, right? And so he had the right to keep everything. And he says, no, I won't keep any of it. You can have it all back. And so again, he waves his rights. So we, we as king of people, we can waive our rights, right? We can waive our right to be offended. There are times when people sin against us, when they offend us, and they're legitimate offenses. It's a legitimate sin. And yet, we can waive our right and say, no, I'm not going to take offense to that. Right? Maybe they had a baby. We can give them grace. Right? And so we can waive our right to be offended. You can waive your right to exercise your authority. There are times when you are in a position of authority, and you can make a decision, and you can tell people what to do. And that's your right. But you can waive that right and allow other people to make a decision, to listen to other people. And you can waive that right because you're not dependent on your authority. You're depending on God. You can, wa- you can waive your right to exercise control over your money. It's rightfully your money. I'm, a, I'm making an assumption that you didn't rob a bank and steal it. Right? Because if you did, then it's not rightfully yours. But I'm, I'm saying I, I, you earned it. You go to a job and you earn a paycheck. It's rightfully your money. You have right to exercise control over that. 
what, how you spend it, whether you save it, whether you spend it, and what you spend it on. But you have the right to give it and give it freely and not exercise control over it. I mean, some people, they give their money, but they want to control it still, right? They want to tell you how you should spend it. But you can exercise your right to waive your rights. You can waive your right to do what you want. You can waive your right to, uh, to something that you've earned. We've all heard somebody say, maybe they've said it to you, you've earned that. You've worked hard. You deserve that. You deserve that new car. You deserve that bigger house. You deserve that promotion. Right? But you can waive your right. You can waive your right to that because it's, those aren't things that you depend on. And so you could. You can waive your right to those things. You can waive your right to take revenge or get even and trust that God will take care of you. You can depend on God. He will take care of you. You can waive your right to look out for yourself and look out for others because you know God will look out for you. You can waive your right to be served and to serve. You can waive your right. And it's all because you call upon the name of God. It's all because you depend and worship on worship God. And this isn't just... Uh, an Old Testament uh, principle. This is a New Testament principle. We see this in the life of the Apostle Paul. He waived his rights for the gospel. In first, uh, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 9. He's writing to the church in Corinth, and a question has arisen, or the, the, the church there has, they are questioning his right to make a living at the gospel, at doing what he's doing, at sharing the gospel. And so he's going to answer them about rights. And he he begins in verse 1 and he says, Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And all of these are rhetorical questions. The answer to all of them is yes. Yes, he is free. And with freedom there, there comes rights. And so he has rights. He says in verse 2, if, others, if to others I am not an apostle, at least to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. This is my defense. He's going to make his defense now. To those who would examine me, do we not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along believing wife, as do the other apostles and the brothers of the Lord and Cephas, that's Peter, or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to remain, uh, to refrain from working for a living? Who, serve as, who serves as a sol- soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? And so he's saying, humanly speaking, the other apostles, the other disciples, they have the right to do this. They're not questioning that their right to earn a living from this. And so doesn't he have the same right? But he doesn't end his argument there. He's going to go on and say, it's not just a human right. It's not just because the others have the same right. He's saying this is a God-given right. He says in verse 8, do I say these things on human authority? The answer is no, he doesn't. Does not the law say the same? Yes, it does. For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it treads out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? No. Does, not, does he not speak entirely for our sake? 
For it is written for this, it is written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope, and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things? If others share in this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? And so he's, he's saying, we have the right. These are my rights. But he doesn't stop there. He doesn't claim his rights. He continues on. He says, nevertheless, we have not made use of this right. But we endure anything rather than putting an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple? And those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So it's his right. It's his right to earn a living by sharing the gospel. And yet, he gives it, he gives it up freely. He says in verse 15, but I have made no use of any of these. Any of these rights. And the reason is he finishes, back in 19, he finishes and he says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all that I might win more of them. Paul knows his rights, but he's not willing to use them because he doesn't want to put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. So how many times have we claimed our rights? We've stood on our rights and we were right to do it because there are rights. God gave them to us. But how many times have that standing on that right, we've put an obstacle in, some, in somebody's way for them to come to Christ. And so Paul waves his right and he says, no, I won't do it. I won't take my rights. And the greatest example in the New Testament, obviously, is Christ. What rights does Christ have? The God of the universe, the creator of the universe, the one we derive our rights from. And so he comes, he comes to earth, and he's in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he's betrayed by Judas. And so Peter pulls out his sword, and he cuts off the high priest's servant's ear. And what does Jesus say in, in uh, Matthew uh, 26, 53? He says, do you think, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? It's his father. Of course, you have a right to appeal to your father. It's well within his rights. He says, that I cannot appeal to my father, and he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels. Christ would have been well within his rights to say, no, I'm not going to do this. I'm not going to let you arrest me and crucify me. He could have called 12 legions of angels to come and save him from that, but he waved his right and said, no. And he did it for you and me so that we could have our sins forgiven. So he waived his rights. Paul, writing to the Philippians in chapter 2, verses 6 and 8, he says, Who, and Christ is the who, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. It was his right. He is God. And yet he waived his right to be God. In verse 7 he says, But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of man. So again, he, he gave up his right. He emptied himself 
from, from being God so he can be a servant, so he can be a man. In verse 8 he says, And being found in human form, he humbled himself even further. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on the cross. We have a right to life. It's in our Declaration of Independence. The right to life. Jesus had a right to life, just like you and I do. And he said, I'm not going to claim that right. I will die for you. So we as kingdom people are called to waive our rights, to not stand on our rights. We're called to be servants. We're called to give, give of ourselves just as Christ gave of himself. And so this is one example. There are many examples from Abram's life and other Old Testament saints of how we are to live in an imperfect world that is obviously isn't the kingdom of God. And yet, we are kingdom citizens. We're foreigners here. This is not our home. And so we have to make a decision on how we're going to live. How are we going to live in this imperfect world? The other example here is the example of Lot. Nowhere in scripture ever does it say Lot called upon the name of the Lord. He's a kingdom person. I'm convinced of that. I'm convinced that he had faith in God. But nowhere does it say he called upon the name of the Lord. When conflict came, we don't know what he did. He wasn't the one that initiated it. He didn't go to Abraham and initiate peace. And when given the choice, he stood upon his right. He stood upon his right to choose. It was given to him by Abram, who waived his right. And when he made the choice, he made the choice selfishly. He looked, well, what's the best land? The Green Valley. Never mind the wickedness that was going on there. He picked the lush and the green, and he picked it based on the way it looked. So we have to make a choice as kingdom people. How are we going to live in this world? Are we going to call upon the name of the Lord? Or are we going to depend on ourselves? Are we going to waive our rights? Are we going to stand on our rights? Are we going to seek peace and take steps to maintain peace? Or are we going to avoid conflict? I'm going to give you a time to reflect on what you've heard today. I want you to take some, a moment with God. Ask him to speak with you. I want you to take out your bulletin. I want you to fill out the response card. And I want you to make a decision. What kind of person are you going to be? Are you going to be a kingdom person with kingdom character? Are you going to be the one who takes initiative to maintain peace? Maybe there's a conflict in your life and you've been avoiding it. Maybe God wants you to take that first step and to make peace. Maybe, this, maybe you're in difficult, difficult circumstances in life and you haven't been worshiping God. You haven't called on the name of the Lord. You're angry at God because he hasn't given you what you wanted. He hasn't delivered you yet. So you don't worship him. 
Or maybe you're just the opposite. Maybe God has given you everything and he's blessed you with great wealth. He's answered your prayers. But you've forgotten that you're still dependent on God. Maybe there's an area in your life where you need to waive your rights. You've been standing on your right. But God wants you to to waive it. He wants you to become a servant. He wants you to release control. He wants you to depend on Him. So take a few moments. Give you a few moments here. Dear Heavenly Father, we come before you and we are grateful that we can call upon you. We're grateful that your character is one of grace and mercy and might and justice. And that you are dependable. We ask that you would forgive us of those days, those moments that we haven't called upon you regardless of our circumstances, Father. Father, we pray that you would help us. Help us to desire peace. Help us to maintain peace, Father. Give us courage to go into the conflict and initiate resolution. Father, we thank you that you waived your right to be God, to judge us, pour out your wrath on us and instead you waived your right and you came and you served us and you you humbled yourself and you died on the cross so that we could have a relationship with you. Oh Father, thank you so much. Help us. Help us to become like Christ. Help us to waive our rights to be willing to give our lives to be willing to to not put an obstacle in the way of the gospel for those who haven't heard you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Emmanuel Baptist Church, located in Billings, Montana. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Emmanuel, please visit us online at www.myemmanuel.net.